Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is furniture maker, woodworker, and sculptor Todd McCollister, who talks about working at the boundary between furniture design and sculptural art. I'm less interested in the furniture, in the comfort level of the furniture. <laughs> Not to say that it's deliberately uncomfortable, but but I think that furniture can be beautiful as an artwork can be beautiful, and it can enhance a space conceptually and visually in a way that sometimes an overstuffed chair just doesn't. Not only do we chat in the studio, but spend some time with McCollister in his woodshop. Todd McCollister builds in the zone between furniture design and art, bringing important elements of each into any given object. At times, the boundary between the two fields gets thin or hazy. McCollister earned a BFA in sculpture and photography in 1996 from Texas Christian University and an MFA in sculpture in 2000 from Stony Brook University. He then moved to New York City, first pursuing sculpture and shifting to furniture in 2006. In 2014, he brought what he learned back to his hometown of Omaha, Nebraska and founded Long Grain Furniture. An active member of the informal Omaha art community, Todd currently runs a monthly event series called Final Fridays at Todd's, aimed at bringing the Omaha art community together. Todd McCollister, welcome to Lives. Thank you. It's great sometimes just to start at the beginning and and see where we can flourish from there. So what are your earliest memories of being attracted to uh, shape, material, uh, fabrication, the aesthetic of our lived environment? So when I was a kid, my dad had a wood shop in the basement. It was a little bit rudimentary, but it was it was enough to play around. And he would let me use tools like a jigsaw and, and drills and things like that. And I remember making little rubber band guns and plywood swords and and things like that. Um and I and I played with a lot of Legos. Spent a lot of time with Legos. And uh we had we had a pretty good sized box of Legos in the basement. And I, I spent a lot of time in the basement just making whatever I could make. And I never thought that it was a, there was a future in that. I sort of wanted to be a Lego designer when I was a kid, but I, I think I always knew that that was not a thing. So when I went to college, um, well, no, I guess in high school, I, I took a few art classes here and there but mostly as a diversion from the more quote unquote serious stuff. I continued doing it like that when I went to college. And then there was a third, it was third semester in college. I think when I didn't have an art class, it was the one time that I knew that I really missed something. So I'm curious for you, you mentioned your father had this wood shop and you would spend time working on things and being quite tactile. And I wonder, was that an example you saw all around you as a child, this idea of being tactile in the world? Or, or was your family circumstance, uh, you know, professionally very different? Uh, it, was, it was mostly about fixing things around the house. It was a, 
not so much about creation, but about uh, solving problems, which is another approach to the same kind of situation, I think. Uh, it was, I guess, my, was, I had friends that had similar things going on in their families, in their homes, to a greater or lesser degree. It was something that I took for granted, I suppose, that when you want something to be different in your home, you change it. So, yeah, my dad would often solve problems like we need a, a phone jack in the bedroom. So he'd install a phone jack in the bedroom, that kind of stuff. I know I'm laboring this a little bit, but I think what this says as I'm asking this question is that I'm fascinated by those aptitudes and talents that I admire, but I don't possess. And so that idea of being, what's the expression of MacGyver, you know, being able to fix things yeah. and having a sort of tactile sense of the physical world around you and how to shape it or be shaped by it. It's not really a talent I've, I've ever had. And I'm wondering if in your childhood, before you went to college, you you look back and you, you see that you were drawn to, I don't know, touching things, um, manipulating things, using devices and tools to to solve issues or challenges or to shape the world? In, in some ways, yes. In some circumstances, yes. Um, it depends a little bit on the material or the problem to be solved. Um, I was never really very interested in fixing my car, for example. That was just, I, it was just not something that I wanted to do. Um, and I didn't enjoy that work. But if I needed a bookcase or something in my room, then sure, I could, I could do that, make that, and it wouldn't be pretty, but it would do the job. Or if I needed something very specific, like I remember this one puppet that I had as a kid that needed a stand to, to sit on. Um, and I, I made this little device that sort of hooked on the back of my headboard on my bed and held this puppet up. <laughs> that was one of the earliest things that I think I've made. So you actually then made a, you know, a deliberate choice about your college. And so in your bio, you shared that you went to Texas Christian University and you were studying sculpture and photography. And so that's an intentional choice before you sort of land there. So what was it that made you decide that that was the field of study you wanted to pursue? I did a lot of photography in high school. Um, yearbook and newspaper photography, uh, lots and lots of that. And I spend, spent a lot of hours in the, in the darkroom processing film and, and developing prints. And I loved doing that. So when I got to college, it was natural to take a photography class. In high school, I had a sculpture class that um, it was a good introduction to what sculpture could be. But it was a, it was a high school class, so it was a little bit elementary. When I got to college, I, I decided to continue that and try that too, along with the calculus and the physics and the American history and the, all the other classes that I was taking at the time. And then in my third semester, I didn't have that art class, and that's what I missed. So as I was making up my mind about what to actually pursue and thinking, well, what does a mathematician or a physicist do all day. Um, the one thing that, that I thought I would enjoy actually doing and on a day-to-day -day basis was making art. 
I'm not sure if it's too early to get to this question, but your bio references zones for art, for furniture, and that you find yourself occupying sometimes that space, either a space between the two or perhaps where they overlap Yeah, and exploring that. And so I, I, I want to explore a little bit about your life leaving college and then heading to New York, but you seem there to have moved from one to the other. So before we talk about your practical you know, life in New York, what's this uh, sort of, as it were, abstract or theoretical uh, interpretation you have about what is the zone for art and what is the zone for furniture and how you see the the juxtaposition of those? Uh, in graduate school, in graduate school, I was close to New York City and I went to art galleries a lot. Uh, and then after I finished and moved to New York City, I continued going to a lot of art galleries and working in some art galleries to help pay the rent. And um, I never saw any furniture in the art galleries. And I would go to furniture stores once in a while, and I never saw art there. There was always a, a, a distinction. There were two different places where these things existed. There was the design world and the art world, and they were very, they were very different. Um, so I never imagined that I might make furniture and show it in an art gallery or, or the other way around. There was, there was always two hard Two, two separate worlds. And it was only when I moved back to Omaha where there's not so much professional design community in Omaha. So people were looking at the artworks. And no, people were looking at the furniture that I was making and saying, these are artworks. And I would, at first I said, no, these are furniture pieces. These are part of the idea of design which is a different thing. And that started to break down over time. Eventually I accepted that the furniture pieces might be artworks and that in fact, I might be an artist again, where I had, I had really given that up uh, kind of cold Turkey at one point in 2006. Uh, I had really stopped thinking of myself as an artist when I started to make furniture. And when, and when I was back in Omaha, it was when the, I started to think, well, okay, I might be an artist again. At that point, it was an easy step to start making sculptures again, if I'm an artist anyway. So you're working with this subject matter. And so maybe for you, the distinctions may be a little deeper and more opaque and require examination. I, I wonder if for some of your clients or people seeing your work, furniture feels like a term that perhaps speaks more to function. And what they're really trying to say is this furniture is too beautiful. It, it asks me too many questions. It creates a response in me that doesn't fit the use of the word furniture that I would yeah. use. Yeah. Um, it depends on the client. There are lots of clients that are, very interested in, in design, interior design and product design and uh, industrial design that do seek for their things in their lived environment to be more, um, to have some content, to have some effect on the space. Um, and others just want a chair to be comfortable. 
And this is okay. This is two different approaches to the same thing. I'm, I'm building with design in mind and design history and the future and the past of design. I want to be part of that. I'm less interested in the furniture in the comfort level of the furniture. <laughs> Not to say that it's deliberately uncomfortable, but, but I think that furniture can be beautiful as an artwork can be beautiful and it can enhance a space conceptually and visually in a way that sometimes a, an overstuffed chair just doesn't. So speaking of overstuffed chairs and let's talk about New York city. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's a metaphor. For, uh, maybe it isn't. Anyway, um, college, uh, and you studied these these crafts and, and this artistry there, and then you went to live in New York City, and your initial focus was towards sculpture, and, and then there was a, a shift. But what was it then that made you, what was this choice that it would be sculpture that you endeavoured towards, and what were you actually doing? Um, okay. So when I moved to New York, I had just finished my sculpture degree at Stony Brook. It was natural to continue that and, and try to get famous, I suppose. Uh, so I, I moved to the city and I, I, I got a job in an art gallery as an art handler and installer. And, and I would do, I would install exhibitions and, um, pack artworks to be shipped and unpack things. And, um, if there was a client coming in to see a specific thing, I would install it in the viewing room to be looked at and lots of physical things like that. Um, that paid all right. It paid the rent and it was flexible and it left me time to make, make artworks in my one bedroom apartment. It was, um, well, I found it difficult to put my work in front of galleries in New York because there are just so many artists. Galleries were, were asking me or were telling me all the time, please don't try to show me your work. And that was frustrating to me. Not so much, thank you, we're not interested in this work, but we don't even want to know what this looks like. We don't we don't want to know what your work looks like because frankly, there are so many artists in New York that are trying to get the attention that the people that work in the galleries who are people with time schedules and pressures of their own, they just don't have the attention to be able to look at one more artist's work. And it's, and I, and I understood that and I, um, and I didn't know a way around it. I didn't know how to, show my work to people without being a pain in the ass, which, um, I, people told me in so many words, how artists are a pain in the ass sometimes. <laughs> um, so eventually as I was building the sculptures that I wanted to make, I was learning these woodworking skills in my one bedroom apartment. And, um, the things that I was making started to look a little bit like furniture. And people in galleries would see that I had skills that I could apply to furniture like things. And, and they were starting to ask me, well, do you think over the summer break, you could build a bookcase in the gallery office? And I said, okay. 
or can you, can you build us a table for the trade show? And I said, yeah, I think so. Eventually people started asking me if I would build furniture for clients. And I said, sure, let's do that. And it was a real, there was a moment where it was a real, um, hard stop on the sculpture career, kind of a, a, a lateral shift. When you look back on that now, you said it was a hard stop, but given how we talked about the sympathy between the overlap between art and furniture, I'm wondering if it was less a hard stop than more perhaps the other side of a coin. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, at that point, it seemed like a harder stop than it seems as I look back on it today. Because um, today, the border between the fields is much fuzzier, much hazier than I thought of it at that point. And I don't know if that means that my perception of it was, was wrong, or if that means that it's different in another place, or if that means that it's changed over time. I think maybe it's some of all three. Because I think there are galleries, there are art galleries in New York that show furniture now. There were not then. And several other things have changed that make me think that it's some of all three of those answers. What was it that brought you back to Omaha? Uh, it was family stuff. Um, my ex-wife and I had a had a sort of a dissolution and one of us had to leave our apartment and uh, and I began to think, well, it, this may be the time when I consider moving to other cities. I never intended to be in New York forever. So maybe this was a good time to think about moving somewhere else. And as I got deeper into that thought process, I couldn't make a case to myself for moving to anywhere else but Omaha. So here we are. My parents are here and my brother and his family are here. So it, it made sense to be back in Omaha. What was the genesis of long grain furniture? Interesting question. So uh, long grain is a technical term in woodworking. That means, so a long grain surface is a surface where the fibers are oriented in the direction of the surface. A short grain surface or an end grain surface has the ends of the fibers or just a little bit of long grain, a little bit of the length of the fibers. Um, when you glue surfaces together, a long grain surface glued to a long grain surface is going to be very strong. A long grain surface glued to a short grain or an end grain surface is going to be weak. So long grain furniture is a reference to longevity or strength or uh, technical aptitude or uh, good craft, really. Good design, um, taking into account the strengths and weaknesses of the material. So when you came back and you established Long Grain Furniture, it's its own fledgling business. Essentially, you're an artist, you're a furniture maker, but you're also an entrepreneur. And you, know, you need to do ordinary things like all of us, like you know, pay bills and yes, you know, yes. eat and stuff like this. So I'm curious about how you went about establishing the business so it could be successful. Because I think if you hadn't done that, then the degree to which you 
re-emerged as a as an artist could have been in some doubt. So I'm I'm just curious about how you navigated establishing the business, understanding what clients wanted, and and actually doing the job of the job. Yeah, yeah. Well, the basic fundamental under underlying principle of my marketing scheme is that the people that are interested in my furniture design are probably also going to be people that are interested in artworks. So I made a real strong effort to get to know those people and to attend events where I could find them, put myself in front of them and tell them who I am. Very much face-to-face, relatively little uh, online marketing or print marketing or things like that. It was, it's always been very much, I am Todd. Um, and this is the product that I make very aware of the reality that I am the product in a real sense, um, as any small business owner is, and that a person who will buy my work one probably also is interested in art or, or design things and also likes me personally as a person because people like knowing the person that they deal with. And it's, it's really a, uh, um, it, the process involves a lot of, of contact and listening to one another. So, um, the face to face part has been important to me. I am curious how you as a person, you know, your own flaws, lived experiences, your relationship with the world, with the material, how do you show up in your pieces? Oh, um, as far as the furniture goes, the furniture is very, um, it balances the rational and the irrational very carefully, I think, as I do in my mind when I consider a problem, I always, there's part of me that is thinking rationally and part of me that's thinking emotionally. And I think that balance is important and it comes out in the designs. Um, in the sculpture work, I think there's some of the same, but it's, it's a little bit heavier on the, uh, the, the emotional balance or the, the subliminal balance less on the reason side. Obviously this is an audio medium. So I'm going to invite you to try to describe one or two pieces of of sculpture of yours. Maybe just stand out to illustrate a little bit about the work you're doing with sculpture. And then maybe we can explore what you're trying to communicate with the piece. There's a piece that I made recently called The Decisive Moment, which is, I mean, Anecdotally, that's a reference to Henri Cartier-Bresson, the, the photographer. But uh, the, the sculpture, it's made of walnut, and there's a bowl shape at the bottom with a sort of a pillar that rises up, a very long spindly pillar uh, that rises up from the center of the bowl. And at the top, there's a, there's a small orange spaceman figurine like a, a toy, a plastic toy. And the figure is holding a feather and he has a, has a posture like he's about to jump from the top of this very tall pillar. Uh, some of the inter- some of the important bits of interpreting this sculpture are the fact that 
Um, one, it's impossible or a very bad idea um, that he's holding this feather as if it's going to help him on the way down. And in the rational world, it's not. But in the world of imaginative play, it might. And the fact that he's a, he's a toy brings us to that world and takes us out of the world of the, the real world and the place where rules affect our successes and our failures. Um, I sometimes feel that uh, the world is not as rational as we want it to be. And successes are rarely dictated by rules and defined paths. So in this sculpture, this little figure, the hero of the sculpture, is making a decision to jump from this pillar. And as far as I know, he might win. He might survive this jump. So um, more power to him. I love amplifying and exploring our imaginative powers. Your artist statement that you use for your, your artist work, you make reference to your figures as having a sincere optimism that comes from fairy tales, magic realism, and old-fashioned legends. And I'm yeah. wondering, is, is there uh, an, areas of mythology or, or some deeper questions that you yourself are you know, wrestling with and exploring with, with your sculptures, trying to express in this three-dimensional format? Once in a while, there are Greek mytho- myths that, that uh, find their way in. Um, it's rarely specific myths or rarely specific stories or fairy tales that, uh, that I illustrate. It's more often the feelings of these things, the ambitions, the heroism, the, uh, the risks that characters take in those, in those stories that I'm after. And I think the thing that compels me most about those stories is that they are real people, that they are ordinary people, that they are you and me, that we, we sometimes take these crazy risks in our lives. Sometimes we do very dumb things and sometimes we do very brave things. And sometimes we, we have success where success is not possible. It's the, it's the connection to, to our, our real lives. The metaphorical example that we can apply these, these adventurers to as ourselves the way we relate to them as humans is the, is the real key. Do you find that in your process of developing the sculpture, are you working from an idea that you have in your head, a visual idea? Perhaps it's an, a spark that's created by reference to a Greek myth or an issue in your own life. Where does this concept begin? And wherever it starts, does it get shaped by the material, as you start working with a sculpture, does it actually tell you how it wants to be formed? Sometimes it begins with the material, yeah. Um, sometimes it may begin with a specific piece of wood that's been hanging around in my space for years sometimes. Uh, other times it begins with um, a technical challenge to myself. I wonder if I can make a 
connection, you know, this or that, or I wonder if I can bend a thing in a certain way or uh, something like that. Or other times it begins with a found object like a plastic toy. Um, when I realized that its pose has a maybe one intended use by the toy designer. Um, but if I hold it in a different way, it might be doing something altogether different. Uh, or if I, if I put these two things together, maybe it, it suggests a, a different task that the person is doing, that the hero is doing. Um, so it varies from piece to piece. And very often I will, um, I'll have an idea and I'll make a part that uh, it doesn't feel like a complete sculpture yet, not a complete thought, but it's something, It's an, it becomes an element. And sometimes it'll sit around for a few days or a few weeks or a few years, and then I'll figure out what it's, what it is or figure out another thing to put with it that changes it further. Are you in dialogue with the material? And again, I ask this question because, you, you know, I am not a gifted person when it comes to tactile craft. So I'm really curious about how you have a dialogue with material, how when you are working with it, using your hands, sort of physically and mechanically engaging with it, if there's some other level of dialogue and engagement that you're having with each other. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Wood is a very beautiful material and it comes from a living thing. It comes from nature. It breathes. Um, it supports other life. It's part of a community in a forest. So yes, there's life in wood and I can't deny that for sure. And a lot of wood will tell you stories about its life by the, the figure in the wood, the swirls and the ins and outs and the bends and the twists of it will tell you, Oh, there was constant wind blowing from the South in this place where this tree grew. So it's, curly over on this side. Um, <laughs> those kinds of things are, are fascinating to me. Um, when I work with it as a material, sometimes those things come into play. Oftentimes the wood is a color or a texture or a, a weight or a, a size or a shape, uh, more formal things. Um, early in my art education. An artist called Isamu Noguchi was a strong influence for me. He was an, mostly a stone sculptor, and one of his driving principles was to try to do as little as possible to the material. That was a strong influence for me and helped me to, to use found objects and to respect materials for their history and for their... Uh, their previous use. Um, later on in my development, I had a mentor when I started making furniture who pushed me a little bit the other direction with comments like, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful, but what are you going to bring to it? What are you adding to it? What, why, what have you done that's worth doing? Um, you can't just take a beautiful thing and let it continue being beautiful you know, be part of the conversation, I think is what he was saying. And as I've done more things that get used in spaces and, and have relationships with a person that owns them, they have 
become an important part of the conversation as well. So now there are really four things that are in dialogue together. It's the material, it's what I have to say with it, and the space that it will occupy, and the person who uses it or lives with it. So hopefully a thing that exists out in the world for for a longer a longer time will have more behind it than it did when I initially made it. Continuing that idea then, you have worked, you know, for years with and on wood. How has wood worked on you? Oh. Um well I cut the end of my thumb off once. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I doubt that's what you're thinking of. Um, wood is a soft material and it's a hard material. I think that the, the, uh, the nature of wood fits into my personality and, and we, uh, we affect one another properly. Um, going back to college again, I had a professor who once just kind of off the cuff and he was a stone sculptor, very slow process. Um, and he was a very quiet person and really only said something when it was worth listening to. Uh, he made an, an off-the-cuff comment to me one time, well, Todd, you have to find the material that suits your resistance. And I thought about it, and, and I thought, okay, Chris is making things with stone. It's very slow. He's very slow. And it's a, it's such a such a good fit. Um, and I knew others who were much more ebullient and gregarious and faster and outgoing, um, who were making work that was much more expressive and quick. Um, and to me, wood is a good compromise. It takes both the, the slow, deliberate part of my brain and the, the more emotional um, kind of um, quicker part, and it uses them both. I'm thinking back to a comment you made earlier, which was, I think it was your third semester in college, and you realized that you were missing that aspect of art and working on sculpture and, and those aspects. Yeah. And so there was that absence, and it, it makes me wonder now if when you feel most complete as a person, when you feel, I don't know, really just a balance with who you are and who you should be, if that moment is when you are in this conversation with material. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I'm making art is where I feel the most complete. And I feel happier when I'm making art. Um, and it feels like this is the thing that I'm... I'm doing because I'm meant to be doing it and not because it's, it's going to lead to the greatest success or whatever that means, but because this is, this is why I'm here and it's important. Um, I, I feel strongly that my responsibility as a human being is to use the skills that I have and use the, the focus, the, the, uh, the direction that I am oriented to use that orientation uh, to do the most I can for the world. Some people have you know, orientations that help them, you know, save lives as a doctor or, or earn money for a nonprofit 
or some other things. My, my orientation allows me to, to make these objects that um, contribute to people's intellectual and emotional growth. So that's where I want to be, and that's what I need to do, yeah. In the studio, we had a chance to talk about McAllister's life, his work, and his art. Next, we pay McAllister a visit at his workshop and showroom, which is housed in Omaha's old Quartermaster Depot, to learn more about that space, the materials, his practice, and his craft. So I've pulled a piece of scrap cotton wood out of the scrap bin. And I'm going to move the fence of the saw. We now have two pieces of cotton wood. Uh, the three of us, uh, me, you, and Courtney Beerman, are standing here in the workshop. Could you first describe what does it smell like in here? Oh my goodness. To me, it smells um, like everywhere else. Um, <laughs> um, I don't have a sense of the, uh, the smell of the wood shop anymore because I've been around it so long. And it's, it's a, I take it for granted, I guess, is the best way to say it. I really don't notice the smell of the wood, but usually when new people come here, they do. They do notice that you're nodding your head as if you, as it's a big deal. Um, when I cut a specific kind of wood, I often will notice a difference and say, oh, that, that must be red oak, or Chris must be building with beech today, or, or it, that's often a signal for the specific kind. What is this place that we're in? Where is this shop situated? This is the Quartermaster Depot. Quartermaster Depot is at 21st and Woolworth Avenue. It was uh, started by the U.S. Army in 1880. It was started as a place to warehouse supplies. It's next to the train, um, and as I understand it was, the train was here first, and then the Army located itself next to the train so that they could load supplies on the train and ship them west to the Army soldiers uh, defending the, the pioneers. And literally as you're sharing this with us, a train is going past now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The train still runs. The Pacific Main Line is right here on 50 feet from where we're standing. The fundamental element that is also here is wood, the racks and racks of wood. And I'm, yeah. really, I'm really curious about what is it wood you have? How do you source it? How do you use it? Well, starting with the plywood rack here, uh, each of us who uses the shop has some space of our own in the plywood rack. And each of us has material that works best for our own projects. Um, Sean has some nice walnut veneer core plywood. Chris has more melamine and particle board for interiors of cabinets. I have some veneer plywood. There's MDF. This is a Baltic birch plywood for drawer boxes. It's a wide variety of material. Most of it all comes from a place just right around the corner called Liberty Hardwood. 
and they are the best hardwood and plywood supplier in town. In the studio, we had a chance to talk about your life, your work and your art, and now we're on site with you at your workshop and showroom. And so I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking through one or two of the pieces that we have in front of us. Yeah, of course. Um, this is stalagmite versus stalactite. It is a slab of walnut that's been cut and joined back together to become sort of a hill and a plateau. And there's a, a long spiky piece above it and below it that are reflections of one another. And there's a hole, a natural hole, from the, the wood material itself that passes from the top side through to the bottom side. On the top side, there's a plastic uh, toy astronaut, a spaceman. And on the bottom side, there is a little monster. And the two figures have a, a pose, a gesture that is a mirror image of one another. One is right above the other. They basically reflect one another. So the top of the plateau reflects the bottom of the plateau. The idea here came from a, a video of a performance that I saw from the, uh, the Metropolitan Opera in New York. It's a very small production of a contemporary retelling of the Beowulf story. And at the beginning of this production, the two principal actors flip a coin. One of them calls it in the air and they reveal it. And there's a sort of a knowing look between the two of them and they take a breath and then they begin. And I'm not sure, but I think that this moment is the moment where they decided who was going to play which part in the story, um, which was going to be the, the monster and which was going to be the hero. Um, they kind of come to the middle and they're basically the same. And that really inspired this kind of reflection of the, the good versus evil, the hero monster flattening and the, the reflection between them. The, uh, the sculpture work generally has um, a narrative and metaphorical direction. It means something, right? There's, a, there's, a, um, there's an allegorical meaning or a, um, there's some, somehow a message that we can take and apply to our lives. Um, the furniture work is, um, it's more about interior design and formal relationships within the, the structure and making a beautiful functional thing. Um, retaining a function, and, you know, it has to work as a table or a dresser or a bench or, or what have you. It should look great. It should be made well, um, but the furniture things don't need to mean anything. In the middle between these two categories, I have these bowls uh, and other decorative arts kind of objects. Um, they're a looser function. Um, I, the bowls aren't, aren't good for food. They're great for decoration. And I put a lot of thought into the process and the forms that will come out of them. So they, the bowls are in the middle. They try to be decorative uh, and have the appearance of function, but if the function goes away, that's okay for the bowls. It's just where the emphasis is. It's um, more function or more allegory. Is there a piece that started as something else? 
that that turned into a different um, story, structure, metaphor. The piece that I just told you about, the stalagmite stalactite piece, um, this piece of walnut, the, the flat piece, I had it for probably 10 years and tried to figure out furniture uses for it, each time sort of failing to to uh, to come up with something. I would periodically pull it out of the storage and basically try to imagine what it might want to be. And it never worked. Um, and then at some point, I just said, all right, it's time for this thing to be something or go in the trash. And I just started cutting it and it turned into this. There are a lot of things that start out where I'm not sure what they're going to be. And I'll, I'll just start making something, some element of it, not sure whether it's going to be furniture or sculpture until a little bit farther along in the process. And I'll, I'll make some element and sometimes it will reveal right away what it's going to become. And other times it will sit around for a week or a year or 10 years. And later I'll figure out what it wants to be. But I don't know if there's anything that has, that I thought was going to be one thing and then changed gears and became something altogether different. There are certain motifs that I can see as I'm looking at a constellation of work in the showroom. So those motifs might, for example, include some bells that are components of pieces, these little statuette figures uh, representing some human form and, and also some animal forms. There's a use of scale, like a flatness to surfaces. And then you seem to work a lot too with natural blemishes in the wood, such as the hole that you mentioned in, in the piece you just described. You clearly work with what might be thought of as, as the deformity in the wood. All of those seem to be common themes. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think all those things are about balance for me. Finding a, a balance between the uh, the natural and the the part that it, that I impose. I think that natural materials are great, but without my own voice, I don't feel like I've contributed something. So I, I feel like I need to affect the natural material in some way. The figures are a way to uh, to bring narrative into a setting to create a a story. It's a, it's a balance between form and narrative, form and um, content. So bells are, um, I guess I have two bells that are in sculptures here today and they kind of do different things. One of them is functioning as, a, as an indication of plum. It kind of shows that you know, it's, it's situated in a whole in the head of a figurative sculpture. It's in the head, and the head is kind of tilted a little bit, and the bell is our indication that it's tilted a little bit because it's not quite plumb. In another sculpture, the bell is hanging in a string, and it's functioning as an indication of a sound source or a, or a production of a, a noise. It's being a bell, right? This piece here, 
is about listening. And the bell kind of subverts the direction of the listening. It's a piece about listening, but it's not clear where the listening is coming from or going to. Like which end is listening and which end is speaking. And that's a little bit deliberate, that, uh, that breaking of the rational order. I just want to know, how do you feel when you are in this space? This, this is your home in some ways, and I'm curious, how do you feel in this space? It is my home. I'm comfortable here. Um, my dog usually comes here with me, so it's, it's a very comfortable place. You know, I know this, this room very intimately, um, but it's also work. So coming here, I know that I need to focus and I need to do a job, right? And being an artist is, it's a romantic thing. It's a creative endeavor that has a lot of kind of magical inspiration involved. And that's for sure, but it's also work. So there are processes that need to happen. And there's the magic part, that, but there's also the sanding and the measuring and the cutting and the, and the decision-making and all those really kind of nitty-gritty nuts and bolts operations that are unavoidable. And it's just like a lot of other people's workspaces in that sense. It's a trade in some sense, just like an electrician or a plumber, um, this art-making thing. You seem, you use the word home. You, you seem at home in this place. Yeah, I, I am at home. My guest today has been furniture maker, woodworker and sculptor, Todd McCollister. Todd, it's really been lovely to chat with you. Thank, Thank you, Stuart. This really was nice. Thank you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.